Welcome to episode 118, Supporting African-American Clients, Increasing Access to Care and Appreciating Cultural Norms, featuring Dr. Tammy Hodo. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future podcast episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I'm excited today to be joined by Dr. Tammy Hodo. She has a PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in Urban Studies and a minor in Sociology uh, with a specialization in race, class, gender, and ethnicity. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Hodo. Thank you so much, Beth, for having me. So why don't you take a moment and tell us more about yourself and about your background, and then we will dive into this topic of discussing improving access to mental health care in the African-American community. Well, um, I'm originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is the third most segregated metropolitan statistical area in America. Um, I am, my parents married in 1962, which is not right, you know, nothing unique except for my parents don't match. Um, so my father was African-American, he's passed away, um, but my mother is German and uh, Welch, but American. Um, so they married before Loving versus Virginia. Um, and we grew up in a predominantly white space uh, in Milwaukee because of the hyper-segregation. Uh, so I have uh, my doctorate from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, as you indicated, and I focus on race, class, gender, and ethnicity because as a biracial person, I find that I continue to struggle um, with the whole social construct of race, knowing that really, you know, we're all just human beings, um, that we all have different ethnicities, but race is a social construct, so it's not even biologically real, but it's something that we as a society has created We've created and we've given it power. Um, and it causes so much problem, you know, so many problems like access uh, to mental health, educational inequality, and just a variety of issues. But I'm also a TEDx speaker. So I did my TEDx on the social implications of race, where I traced uh, the US Census from 1790 until now in regards to the way they count it and categorize people. Um, and initially, you know, they only had three options. Either you were uh, black, a slave, mulatto, or you were a free white. I find it interesting that a lot of European or Caucasian Americans now don't realize that the Irish, Polish, and Italian were not considered white when they initially came to America. And I've seen, you know, them being absorbed into this whole construct of whiteness. And I've seen those who historically have been oppressed now become the oppressor. Um, so that's problematic in itself. But I also see issues in the African-American community when I think of homophobia, um, which is, you know, an issue, very serious issue in the black and brown community. Um, and again, there we get the oppressed becoming the oppressor. So I'm just really excited to be here and just talk about, um, you know, the lack of access and about being culturally competent surrounding provide, you know, providing services to African-Americans and their families. Wonderful, thank you for joining us, Tammy. And you are also the founder and president of All Things Diverse. Can you take a quick moment and just tell our listeners what that is and the work that you do on the day-to-day? -day? Sure, so All Things Diverse is an educational consulting firm. Um, I left, I was in academia as a faculty member or an administrator, it would depend. Um, but I left there and basically established my own educational firm focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion, working with companies, universities, uh, not-for-profits, different agencies regarding um, becoming culturally competent, diversity within organizations, and employees are actively engaged um, and wanting that diverse workplace as well as that inclusivity that should be included in that. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us today and sharing some of your experience and your expertise on this topic. So today we're going to be talking about the issue of mental health care access in the African-American community. Tammy, where would you like to start on this topic? Well, I would just like to say, well, basically, I want to start with the cultural competence, competency component. Um, reality is, is so like when I do studies and I've seen, so we'll, we'll speak from a sociological perspective for me. So in sociology, we recognize that when the African-American family has been studied in the past, it's traditionally 
been studied with the European-American um, group being seen as the default race that all others are compared to. And that is so problematic because reality is the experiences have been polar opposite. Um, so in sociology, we've seen this social pathological approach being used to study the African-American family. And again, they would compare a two-parent nuclear um, European-American household to a single female-headed household, uh, African-American household. And then they would say, oh, well, see, look at all these things that are wrong, you know, and just not recognizing the differences and the different experiences and how that impact the family. Um, and then we've had another approach in sociology, which is the strength-based approach to studying the African-American family, which is one that has traditionally been used by sociologists of color. And it basically says, yes, um, the African-American family is different, but after slavery, Jim Crow, eugenics, and all these other things, um, all these different types of uh, institutional as well as informal oppression, here we still stand. You know, so that's kind of that strength-based approach. But it it both approaches are problematic because one is comparing it to white families, which again, the experiences are different. And the strength approach is problematic because it doesn't take into consideration some of the institutional and contemporary policies that we continue to see and experience and struggle with. Well, you just said there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack. Um, where do you think we should start in this conversation? I mean, one of the things that occurred to me while you were talking what jumps out is just these continuing uh, generational traumas. And then a, a group of people that, as you and I have talked privately, a group of people that have been institutionally discriminated against and with norms created in society to make sure that it stays that way, whether that's voting rights, uh, housing rights, things like that. Where do you think we should go? Well, I think that generational trauma is real. Um, and I think that your audience understands that. And to understand, you know, um, like African-American history doesn't begin with slavery, but too often that's how it's depicted. Um, the people who were stolen, sold or whatever from the, you know, the West um, coast of, of the continent of Africa, they were not slaves. They were future, you know, engineers, doctors, lawyers, school teachers, you know, whatever. Um, but when they were brought to America, they were indeed in, in, enslaved. And the whole point of that was that they didn't speak the language. I mean, where were they going to go to? Families were sold, you know, and separated at the discretion of the owner of that family. I mean, and if you don't believe that trauma has continued, you know, throughout these generations and just seeing how these families have been broken up and that disconnect. Um, one of the mechanisms that slaves would do is that they wouldn't try to name their child. The first name would be the last name that they had. And that way, when they got separated, because they knew it was inevitable, they would be able to locate their child ideally. So, I mean, if we just think about the history of America, so we, we have over 200 years of slavery. Then we had failure in Reconstruction, right? When Reconstruction was happening and we had the troops in the South, you know, African-Americans were doing okay. Reality is, is that upon um, emancipation, African-Americans were getting educated um, at a higher rate than lower income white families because there were no schools in the South. But African-Americans began, the free ones began to establish. Um, European-Americans, you know, white families would send their children to school in the Northeast. You know, that's why we see all those old universities there. But I mean, and then we see Reconstruction and once the troops were removed, Jim Crow set in, you know? And so we see that and we see, you know, I mean, I can turn on the television and be re-traumatized at any time if I watch an old movie where, you know, the dogs are being released and hoses are being released and people are being beat just for being asked to be treated as humans, you know, like um, um, James Baldwin, I think it is that, you know, had the thing, I am a man. You know, and 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 just realizing that our experiences have been rather different, and a lot of it has been legal and institutionalized, and this trauma just continues. I mean, so we go from Jim Crow to mass incarceration, 
you know, which is disproportionately also affected African-Americans. It's real easy to say it's something wrong with those people, you know, recognizing that one out of three African-American men will be under the control of the criminal justice system at some point in their life. But reality is, is that, no, it's nothing wrong with these people except for they're being over-policed in certain communities, which tend to be low income. And there's this direct correlation between race, although a social construct, and social economic status because of these historical and some of the contemporary policies and practices that are in play. So yes, this trauma just continues generationally from lack of access, um, lack of equity, lack of equality, and, and it just continues. And it's like the snowball effect and, and it's just getting bigger. You know, we see with the Black Lives Matter movement, we see conversations surrounding that trauma within African-American communities and recognizing America is highly segregated based, based on social class. And again, that correlation between race and social class. As you're talking about this, of course, so you and I are recording this right now in February of 2021. And even when we look at the the people that have in the United States that have gotten coronavirus that have passed away due to coronavirus complications. And just another example of the inequity in the fact that black and brown individuals are significantly more likely to get coronavirus, also more likely to die from it. And at least as we stand right now with vaccines rolling out, significantly less likely to be able to actually get a vaccine relative to uh, their white counterparts. So all of these things um, kind of bring us to our conversation right now and talking about kind of mental health access. D tell me kind of some norms within the African-American community that our listeners need to keep in mind, just even considering what mental health means in the African-American community and norms. And granted, for the sake of our conversation, you and I are talking in generalized terms. And so, of course, these things are not going to apply to everyone. Um, and someone has to write the book in the chapter on cultural diversity. So can you sum up some of that that listeners need to keep in mind as they consider mental health access for the African-American American community and really what mental health even means within that community. So um, I think it's important for people to understand that the African American community is continues to be the most religious uh, group in America, um, and and the most segregated time in America is ten o'clock on a Sunday. Um, so African Americans tend to go to church with other African Americans. Um, but oftentimes in the African-American church, the ideal has been taught that you don't have mental health issues, that any, any issue you have, God can solve. So you should just really pray about it and talk with your pastor who may not even be trained um, in mental health you know, uh, counseling, but you should just have conversations with them and just pray without ceasing. And maybe you should fast and, and, and God will direct your steps. Um, but reality is, is that people need to gain access. Um, they need to know, I mean, we know in the African-American community, there is a stigma associated with mental health illness. Um, we know, you know, PTSD is very real in our community due to a variety, you know, that, that generational trauma, as well as a lot of other things that we see taking place in our society. Um, but we know that, um, you know, there, there's a stigma within the African-American community. And that's something that we within the community have to address. But I think that counselors being culturally competent and recognizing that, you know, we do kind of focus or um, function more as a collective uh, versus that individuality and how important the church is to most African-Americans. Um, and I think that would be just very helpful in understanding how to um, begin that conversation with your African-American patients. Before you and I started recording, you were talking about some of the norms in the culture and you brought up um, the idea of judges not understanding certain expenses. Um, as I interview you, for our listeners who know this, I'm white <laughs> and, and immersed in white culture. Um, and that's, that was what I was born into. For people that are outside of African American culture, what are some of those norms? Like you already brought some up about um, thinking about hair care, things like this that are part of the African American identity that white Americans may not even 
realize that are part of, and actually are all part of self-esteem, of mental health, of basic self-care. Can you spend a moment talking about that? So hair um, is a major issue. So, right. So your state, right, is the first one to outlaw discrimination based on natural hair. Um, reality is, is that there are some additional expenses um, if African-American women decide to wear weave, um, whether it be braids or uh, sew-ins or, or wigs or whatever, um, that that's an expense. Um, that, you know, our hair um, is different. It's very thick. So we do not wash our hair every day. Um, that is not something due to lack of hygiene, but it would just dry it out and make it basically fall out. So recognizing those additional expenses when it comes to hair care, because it is extremely expensive if you get it braided or if you get weave put in, um, you know, recognizing that, you um, you know, there are some differences um, in regards to, um, I've also, you know, know that a lot of African-American women, when I think of body shape, um, may not want to work out. Um, and we see a lot of obesity in our community due to concerns of their hair. Um, you know, and what am I going to do with my hair because I don't have it braided and it's natural and I have to go to work. Um, so swimming and working out, you know, you may have quite a few, I mean, African-Americans, there are a lot that do not know how to swim. Um, and that is something that I was amazed to find out myself. I'm prior military, you know, so I'm Navy. We had to be able to swim. Um, but, you know, just just recognizing some of those cultural differences and, and respecting them for exactly what they are. And then even verbiage. I recall speaking with the doctor who had interned in the um, urban core. And I was living in the suburbs and she told me she had a, a patient who had come in and spoke about um, how she had all almost fallen out. And my doctor said, I had to ask her three or four times because I didn't know what that meant. Like she almost fell out. Well, what she was saying was that she was going to faint that she had almost fainted. So even just terminology and understanding, um, you know, and if you don't understand something, ask for clarification. People don't have a problem explaining it. Um, but I think when we make assumptions, that's where we get into um, th those problems. You know, just ask people if you don't understand something, if someone's speaking too fast, if they have a what you perceive to be a Southern dialect or um, you know, whatever, just ask them to slow down. Can you repeat that? I don't understand what that means. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I, I would like you to speak more about this, but this idea over the years in the mental health community that, as you said, things that are norms within a family or a norm within a certain ethnic or racial group, having been pathologized because they're not the the default font, if you will. Um, and what you're bringing up about hair, about hygiene, all these concepts to me contribute to that uh, habit within the mental health field of over-diagnosing certain certain issues in the African-American community that we, you know, if you took the same factors and, and had a white client, they wouldn't be diagnosed the same way. Can you speak to that of like what's happened in the way that the mental health um, community, so psychiatrists, therapists, anyone has, has kind of um, foxholed? if you will, African-American individuals with these presuppositions of here's what we, what we, whatever the collective we look like in an ethnocentric uh, European norm and how we've applied that and have caused damage to the community. So, yeah, so there's, um, in sociology, we have two terms. So there's a term called ethnocentrism, which is viewing other cultures through the lens of your own. And that is what has happened in America. Um, I, you know, when we see Native Americans, our indigenous population, our Hispanic brothers and sisters, African Americans, again, white is the default race against which all others are compared. That's problematic. When you deal with your clients, you really need to recognize what ethnocentrism is, and you don't want to practice that. What ethnocentrism is, again, is judging and making assumptions or looking at other cultures through your cultural lens. And if you're part of the majority, which is that Eurocentric uh, group, that's how you're looking at others. And reality is, is that we all have biases. 
And we tend to have, um, you know, we tend to have bias towards those in the in-group that's positive, but negative bias towards those in the out-group. So what you want to practice instead of that ethnocentrism is that is cultural relativism, which is recognizing and respecting other cultures and looking at it through the lens of that culture. So just because one culture does something differently than your culture does not mean that it's incorrect. It's just the way that they do things. You know, um, we had an opportunity. We lived in Europe for almost six years and we lived in Germany. And in Germany, there's no such thing as personal space. Well, in America, is everybody, I mean, pre-COVID, right? Everybody had like this little bubble. They wanted, you know, like, this is my personal space. Well, in, in Germany, there is no personal space, you know? Um, and so people, when they speak with you, they'll be right in front of you and they're speaking. They don't mean any disrespect. Um, but you, again, if I'm using ethnocentrism, I, I would be looking at them from an American perspective. Like, why are you like right in my face speaking? Where if I were, you know, using cultural relativism, I would recognize that this is German culture. Um, and they're not being disrespectful. And I need to look at it from their cultural lens. I think that's a great example. And having lived in Italy, I experienced exactly the same. Um, but I appreciate the simplicity of that example and the importance for us as mental health professionals, learning more about another culture's lens so that we can be aware of ours and what is um, appropriate, if you will. Um, I mean, and it's, it's appropriate is obviously relative, particularly when you're not part of that group, but being more mindful of how that lens is affecting our diagnosing, our treatment planning, our clinical judgment. So to go into this topic of mental health access, what are the problems with our society that have prevented utilization of mental health access within that community? Well, I think that we have to recognize that um, in the medical field, you know, we, we've seen a lot of disparities. And I think that is kind of carried over even into mental health and just these systems. Um, so we know, you know, of Tuskegee, eugenics, um, the father of gynecology practice on slaves um, without anesthesia. And its reality is that there's a bias within a lot of fields when it comes to African-Americans. Um, and so oftentimes African-Americans, just generally speaking, may be suspect you know, of interacting with the therapist. They may not want to be labeled. They may be afraid that they're not going to get the assistance that they need. Reality is, is because of institutional issues and continued discriminatory policies and practices that they may not work a full-time job. They may work somewhere 34 hours a week or two part-time jobs that offer them no insurance benefit. And too often, you know, mental health care as well as medical care is um, accessed through our insurance agents. So not having access, that could be part of it as well as, um, you know, that sliding scale. You know, are you taking into consideration people's income? You know, and, and that, if you do do that, that will allow them access. I mean, I remember being a student and not having much money and having to see a doctor, but they did it based on a sliding scale of what my income was. So that gave me access. Um, but also recognizing that sometimes, you know, representation is important. You know, so when, when you know, a person of color, an African-American female may want to speak to an African-American female mental health practitioner. Um, who can assist her because they'll understand some of those nuances within the culture. Um, and they'll, you know, th they probably would be much more um, straightforward, you know, with that clinician because they feel that connect that connection and that similarity and they won't feel that they're being judged for any um, mental health issues that they may have. And, and we also need to recognize again, how prevalent and impactful the church is in the African-American community. Um, so I've been to some churches where they kind of, you know, preach from the pulpit, you know, about, you know, we'll just pray about it. But reality is, is mental health care is something that people should have access to. And they, you know, and they should be able to, um, you know, afford that access and be provided that assistance. But again, oftentimes they want that representation so they can kind of, just share everything without fear of being judged. Right. And 
having looked at the statistics relatively recently, diversity in the field of psychotherapy is improving. But I know I had the experience just a few weeks ago, looking for a clinician of color that had a specialization in a certain certain field and wasn't able to find it in my area. um, Because that that person literally didn't exist. And granted, where I live, there are absolutely diversity issues. um, And so I'm outside of Los Angeles and this particular pocket where this person was seeking a referral is is known for being very white, but it, it absolutely brought up this idea of, well, then where do you go to find services? You're going to have to drive further in order to find somebody that feels comfortable for you because they understand these aspects of your cultural and ethnic identity. Um, when When you think of, we'll just say your average white clinician, that is wanting to improve their, you know, quote unquote competence, um, you know, with the idea that we never actually hit competence because everybody is different and we continue growing. What would you like the average white therapist to keep in mind when, gosh, even outreach efforts, interaction with the African-American community, um, initial contact, what would that look like that's different than what you see? So one of the things I always recommend, they have the Harvard created the implicit association test. And I'm just a big advocate of that test. And it's based on speed. And it really conjures up that unconscious bias that we have. And I would recommend that people take that because I think you can't mitigate something until you know that you have it. And as humans, we all have bias, Um, you know, and recognizing we have the in group and the out group. And if you're European or white, Um, therapists and you're interacting with communities of color, it's imperative that you understand and you respect those cultural differences. They're not deficits or deficiencies. They're just different. Um, You know, so I would really hope that they would, you know, seek to gain more knowledge, um, that they would take maybe some classes, some workshops on being culturally competent, understanding the institutional components Um, that have continued to um, delay access or impede access to certain groups, Um, understand why the communities function in the way that they do. So I'll give you an example. So initially, when the housing projects were developed, they were developed for veterans, right, and their families as they returned from war. And it was just a temporary thing just until they could get on their feet. Well, that was when it was very Eurocentric, people who were living there. Um, Once they opened it up to the African-American community, the the rules kind of changed. And then all of a sudden it wasn't, it was still income-based, but now you couldn't have a man if you received any type of aid. So aid to family with dependent children, you could not have a man in the household, you know? So there've been things that have been, that have happened in our society that have very much impacted, you know, the minority community. So we see now seven out of 10 African-American children born out of wedlock. Well, to me, this is something left over, you know, from that, well, you can't have a man in the house if you need any type of assistance and recognizing that we do have a lot of people of all different ethnicities who are receiving assistance is not just an urban issue. Um, It's out in the suburbs, it's in rural areas. Um, but it seems to be the face of that tends to be people of color. You know, so we've had policy changes that have really negatively impacted African-American families. So I would just really hope that people would get some history lessons on institutional racism, um, learn, you know, the diversity, equity, and inclusion, like the correct terminology, just as if you're working with the LGBTQI community, you need to know the correct, you know, pronouns and terminology, um, and just be willing to have those uncomfortable conversations uh, with African-Americans, you know, your friends, your family, or whomever, to gain additional insight into things that you may not know, that are relevant and, and relative to what you are attempting to do. I appreciate that. In a prior interview, um, one of the interviewees had suggested even just this idea of immersing yourself in 
different music and different TV shows and different movies and understanding that these are representations that are outside of whatever lens community we've each grown up in and the importance of that kind of exposure to even begin to understand. And and it, it, I believe it was Lambert's uh, Fisher that had said that, but this idea of looking at um, the pop culture stuff as also being a relevant and, and important reference point for particularly white clinicians or for clinicians who are not part of any particular of, of a specific group to try to understand um, a little bit more. <laughs> so I had the experience when I was what I call a baby therapist. Uh, one of my first jobs was working in Los Angeles at a large rehab facility. And here I am a petite white female therapist at the time was much younger than I am now, um, and and was kind of bebopping down the hallways and working sometimes with clients that had some similar backgrounds, um, but more often than not working with clients from all different racial and ethnic backgrounds that were much different than my own. And my own awareness of like basically sitting there in a room with somebody where it's like, you have this lived experience that's profoundly different than I do. Um, and just the, the immediate... Um, sometimes with certain clients, it's immediate, I don't know about you. It was like the best way, you know, like eyebrow raised, I don't know about you. Um, that has to be part of this equation. Uh, this idea of how are clinicians making just a initial phone call uh, seem accessible or that intake? What are some of the factors from a cultural perspective that clinicians need to keep in mind to help establish trust with this community. So you're going to have to um, build some social capital. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, ideally, I tell you one of the best things is if someone else vouches for you, someone within the community, if they vouch for you and say, hey, you know, this person is culturally competent. This is who I'm seeing. I'm having a good experience. Like that spreads like wildfire. You know, people will share that, but it's it's the same, right? If they've had a bad experience, they're going to tell the same the, the same story. Um, so I think that you know, recognizing that your experiences are different, but you know, like you said, I like that ideal of becoming immersed in different cultures and understanding, you know, that um, you know what we see, right, is is the dominant culture. We see that displayed on television. I mean, that's what we see everywhere. You know, and we see little pockets of diversity, you know, in programming and, and things of that nature. But I think it's imperative for counselors to understand that you need to meet um, us where we are and understand that sometimes we, you know, at the African-American, rightfully so, um, the community is suspect. And it's due to historical things. It's due to things that they've been told um, and things that they've witnessed or they've experienced themselves. And so, you know, during that initial intake, I would really work hard to try to build that rapport um, and let my client know that, you know, really this is about assisting you, you know, and I'm willing to learn um, to do what I need to do in order to assist you with whatever issues that you're having. You know, that I'm only here, you know, again, to assist you. I have no ulterior motive. Um, this isn't, you know, Tuskegee or eugenics or, you know, anything of that nature, um, you know, and just trying to build that rapport. Because if you can develop that, you know, if you can't get a sponsor like that social capital, someone else within the community who can say, oh, yeah, you're a good person. You know, Beth is who I see. Um, I'm quite happy with her. She's culturally competent. Then you need to make sure at that initial meeting, you know, that intake that you're showing your competency, that you're working hard with us. Oftentimes it's about relationship building and you have to develop that relationship and understand that, you know, from the bottom, we're starting from the bottom and we have to go from there, you know? So when we do the intake, so what would you like me to call you? You know, do you have a preferred name? Um, you know, uh, how many children do you have? You know, I mean, just, just, general conversation to try to actually get to know that person. And then on that second meeting, I'd be like, so how's your son Levi doing? You know, I mean, things like that, because that that does develop that rapport and that makes them feel special, like you remember and you understand and you want to connect with them on a deeper level. I think the point you just made about the social capital is a really valuable one. And 
you know, coming at mental health care from a medical model, which is not inherently a bad thing. You know, we work in a managed care environment. Many people do, and we live in a managed care world um, for people who have insurance and have access to whether it's uh, public mental health and, and medical care or privatized, whatever it is. One of the things that stand out to me is while you're talking about that, the difference between a psychological assessment, quote unquote, um, and kind of a meet and greet session and that complexity. Um, for our listeners, there's a really good book by Dr. Daryl Chow called The First Kiss um, that talks about the importance of marrying those two concepts and particularly for a population that has been incredibly um I guess what I would say is abused um, and manipulated by the medical environment. And then again, coming into the mental health community where you have African-Americans that have been overdiagnosed with very severe diagnoses like schizophrenia, that if we come out of the, out of the gate talking about symptomatology, instead of what you just said, like, how is your son Levi, that we're going to maybe check a box for our clinical documentation, which anybody listening knows, I love my clinical documentation, um, given that that's my specialization, but that fundamentally more important than that is a rapport building and actually creating a safe environment for someone to trust us and to begin helping them heal. So thank you for making that particular point. One of the pieces that you mentioned was even sometimes distrust that's kind of part of the church community. Do you feel like that's one of the issues that clinicians aren't necessarily um, at the front of outreach with the religious community to help establish trust. Yeah, I think that that would, to me, that would be a way to get a sponsor, right? If if you were embedded, uh, you know, within the community and you gained a rapport with some of the African-American pastors, I think that that would be a definite end. They would provide you that sponsorship and that social capital that would allow um, the African-American congregation that they have to develop that trust in you. You know, so if my pastor says like, hey, you know, I know Beth and she's good people. Um, She only wants to offer, you know, the best type of care. She's culturally competent. Guess who I'm going to choose to go to? You know, and I mean, so I do think that's it. And I don't. And when I talk about the church, reality is, is that African-Americans are very spiritual. I mean, if you think about it and we talk about this quite a bit in sociology and even in psychology, if it were not for the church, oftentimes we don't know how our ancestors would have made it through slavery, you know, because that was like all they had was the afterlife was going to be a better place than than the chains and the whips that they were experiencing in in the current, you know? And so, I mean, the reality is, is please don't ever discredit the African-American church to a client um, because it is a very important component of the African-American community and recognizing that spirituality, again, is very important. And also knowing that, you know, um, oftentimes African-Americans are not okay, like taking medicines, um, they, you know, are very adverse to that um, when it comes to certain medicines because of that medical history we have in America. Um, and then often it's just this ideal that it, it, there is a lack of trust, you know, and I'm sorry that you all have to experience it, but it's legitimate. And I think we all have to respect and understand that it is a legitimate mistrust. You know, it's something, I mean, it wasn't like it was 10 years or 20 years. I mean, it was hundreds of years. Um, You know, I mean, if you think about, um, you know, medical issues, we saw up until the six, you know, um, you know, discriminatory practices, even like you spoke about COVID, um, who's being disproportionately impacted, the minority communities, who's going to have lack of access to the vaccine, again, the minority community. So recognizing that when you go into this, you know, there probably is this distrust, um, and trying to break it down one ice, you know, berg at a time. But so you have to create that. But I do think, I think medical, you know, just the outreach within the community, um, you know, getting to know some of the pastors, um, a lot of them belong to different organizations, um, you know, maybe going out to breakfast with them as a group and just, you know, sharing what you, you have to offer, you know, and what you're trying to do you'll find that you'll get that sponsorship and that cultural capital. 
I appreciate that you kind of gave some insight on on how to do that. One of the things I also want to encourage to anybody listening to this for today's podcast, Dr. Hodo and I are talking specifically about mental health and access. And we also have some other past episodes, some specifically that might interest you, like different treatment modalities that may be most effective with the African-American community. Those are featuring Tia Briscoe, a licensed marriage and family therapist. So please look for those in our course catalog. Um, Because I know a lot of what Tammy just said, I'm going, oh, yes, and then this, and then this. And I I always want to take this interview in a different direction, but then remembering like, no, we're we're over here and, and that there are all these different places that we can talk about. Um, when it comes to that social capital, I'm I'm reminded of something called feedback-informed treatment, which is one of the things I'm really passionate about and basically the research behind outcomes and therapy. And for anybody listening, when it comes to outcomes, when we're looking at a ethnic or, or uh, racial difference between client and therapist, it's, it's not actually irrecoverable. Um, and the research has shown that. And that part of that is a lot of deliberateness by the practitioner to ask for feedback and to be open to uh, guidance and, and insight from the client about their lived experience of a session or of an intervention or just are you listening well? You know, like, are you focused? And that all of those pieces contribute to the building of rapport. When you're talking about this, Tammy, one of the things that keeps coming up for me with uh, when I'm thinking about anybody pursuing mental health care, automatic shame, just it's conditioned into us. You know, if it's an addictive disorder, if it's depressed because we can't get out of bed, like whatever it is, nobody is like, oh, great. (laughs) I have a mental health condition and I need help. Um, Specifically in the African-American community, how how do you believe shame plays into the, um, the, the lack of pursuit of resources of mental health care or um, prematurely dropping out of mental health care? So I think it, it has a lot to do with it. Um, I'm going to say something that's not culturally competent, but that I've heard in the African-American community, only white folks can have mental health issues. Only white people get depressed. You know, and I'm just like, oh my goodness, that is so not true. But there's this ideal that we, you know, African-Americans cannot have these feelings. You know, we cannot, you know, and it's like, no, we can because we're human, you know, or we don't have time for that. I don't have time for you to have mental health issues because I need you to go to work or I need you to focus on this or you need to do that. When reality is that that mental health issue or illness needs to be diagnosed and treated in order for me to go on and do what I need to do and be successful. Um, You know, I mean, we see it all the time. Um, If you think about shootings, you know, one of the first things we see when it's white people and we do, it's a mental health issue, you know, but when we see and it's an African-American, they're a thug. If they're Muslim, they're terrorists. If they're Hispanic, you know, I mean, so we all need to be cognizant of that and understand that that's part of the issue is that the stigma is definitely there. And it's said in the African-American community, you know, no, we don't, we don't have these issues. We can't afford to have these issues. Those are white people's issues. And reality is, is no, those are all people's issues, but we need to remove that stigma from it within our own community and begin to address it. You know, so I think it's imperative that people do seek assistance and that they let their guard down. But I think oftentimes African-American community, we're so guarded because of so many, again, historical issues and contemporary things that we see. I I mean, I'm in Jacksonville, Florida, Brunswick, Georgia's right up the street. Ahmaud Aubrey, you know, was out running one day, you know, and he was shot and killed out running one day, you know, by people who were not police officers, you know, who decided that he looked like he did not belong in the neighborhood, you know, so it's just a lot taking place in the emotional toll of racism, um, in the systemic issues, you know, mental health wise, and that trauma that continue to impact our communities must be addressed, but we within our community must be willing to get the assistance. When it comes to reflecting on that trauma, working through that shame, regardless of what it's about, but you know, this idea of mental health care. I'm just curious, this is based on your opinion as what you do for the average African-American person. How do they 
work through that? I mean, religious being a religious outlet being a primary part of it. I mean, but is it like, let me push it down. You know, I, I grew up in an Irish Italian home and certainly coming from a Catholic background as a child, it was like, children should be seen and not heard. And we don't talk about that and don't air your dirty laundry. So what are some of those norms of like, basically, what do we do with it? Because we all have feelings. So I could tell you what happens in the Irish or or, or Italian home on, on average. But what what do you think happens in, in the African American psyche, when we have that kind of stuff come up? It's suck it up. You know, come on, you, you we don't have time for that. And And there's this whole so this this whole thing about this strong black woman is killing us. You know, and it, it literally, it is killing us because we're not seeking assistance. No, you're a strong black woman. You should be able to handle anything. And it's like, no, it's okay to need help. But this whole idea, or that's a weakness, you know, just like we see with men, if we think of it based on sex and gender norms, real men don't cry. You know, I see that in the African-American community, you know, as if men can't have feelings. You know, but the same again, but, you know, just in general, that strong black woman, you know, black women are super women and all the, and it's killing us physically. Um, and so we internalize all these issues and then we see we get high blood pressure, um, you know, diabetes and all these medical ills from basically, you know, trying to just suck it up buttercup, you know, and, and just address, you know, not address it. You know, I don't have time to have, you know, this emotion because I have 10 things I need to do, or I don't want to appear weak because these aren't issues that we have in our community. You know, we don't talk about, another thing is we don't talk about incest or child molestation, you know, in the community. Oh, those are only things that white families deal with. That's not true. This is alive and well in the African-American community too, but it's just not discussed. You know, so I think that we we need to definitely recognize that it's there. But again, they're told basically, you know, you can have that feeling, but it, it's not going to be addressed. I'm going to need you to do X, Y, and Z and just swallow that emotion and let's keep it moving. We don't have time for that. When looking within the community, you had referenced previously, you know, the challenges with... Um, with law enforcement, but with judges, the thing that's also coming up for me is like the intersection, if you will, between counseling and social work, and that those are two very different things. And obviously, there's a lot of overlap between those. But from my own experience working, um, seeing the suspicion really when I introduce myself as a therapist, because it's like, well, are you a social worker? Are you part of Department of Child and Family Services? Am I going to be mandated to go to some class now? Tammy, you're nodding. Can you talk about that? <laughs> so, the, and again, not culturally competent, what I'm about to say. So there's a saying in the African-American community, it's easy to get white folk in your business. It's extremely hard to get them out. So what that references is, like the Department of Children and Family Service, law enforcement, the courts, things of that nature, any government, whether it be state, county, or federal institution, um, oftentimes we do not want to be involved with because there is this ideal that once you get them in, it's very difficult to get them out of your business. Um, so like you mentioned, you know, so am I going to be mandated to take uh, classes? Am I going to, are you going to take my kids away from me? These are some of the thoughts that go through our minds. You know, when you tell me, well, you're, uh, you know, so are you a social worker? So who do you work for? You know, are you coming to remove my kids? Um, has someone reported me because I spanked them? You know, um, have they said something at school that was inappropriate? So all those things are exactly the reason that there's this mistrust and oftentimes just a misunderstanding of what a social worker does versus a therapist versus, you know, someone else. And so I think education is, is very important within our community too, so that we do, you know, in masses understand the differences. But I think that counselors, practitioners, um, and therapists need to be aware that there is this fear because we've seen it too often. 
you know, and, and that whole thought of it's easy to get. And what it really means is the system to get the system into your business, but it's extremely hard to get them out. I know Tia talks about uh, working with African-American clients and treatment planning and that other podcast episode that we have, but that idea that if we're coming at it again from a really medical model saying, well, here's what you need to do from an outside, you know, as from someone who's outside the community, that that could easily be construed as here's another person with their power telling me how I need to change what I'm doing. Um, you're nodding. <laughs> Tell me what you're thinking. <laughs> yeah, because reality is, is that often we don't, it, it seems like people think we don't have agency, that we can't speak up for ourselves. And we can. And too often we're, oh, you know, people will over talk us, you know, um, they will tell us what they think they know more about us than we know about ourselves. And that's very dismissive and disrespectful. Um, and that's the perception that people will take, you know, so I think you have to be very clear as to why you want people to do certain things when you're talking to the African-American community, you know, so basically, um, you know, you could say, well, Tammy, I believe that if you were to try to learn how to meditate, that may help you with some of your anxiety. And so meditation is this, and these are, there are a variety of ways you could do it, you know, and you could think of it in a spiritual form or however, you know, but give examples and just why I need to do it, you know, and that will help alleviate some of the stress that you feel, or if you feel yourself being stressed out, you know, maybe you want to go ahead and, you know, remove yourself from that situation from five for five minutes, take several deep breaths, take a walk around the block, because then when you come back in, you know, you, you've had an opportunity to kind of digest what has taken place and you're ready to provide that feedback. But you have to kind of, you know, and it's not rudimentary. It's not it's not like we can't comprehend, but it's just understanding that we are suspect of certain things. Um, and that whole power dynamic, you know, um, you know, when we look at, you know, like Fortune 500 companies, what are there? 38 women that are in charge of them next month. We'll finally we'll have one that'll be African-American. That's the only third time, you know, that we've had that. So it's very important to understand that power differential um, and how that can be perceived, um, because we don't see a lot of people of color in positions of authority. Um, you know, and that representation matters. Absolutely. Um, what are your do not do list items? I'm curious, like speaking to counselors wanting to increase access and not only open the door, but keep the door open. And so create an environment that is safe and welcoming for clinicians that are listening and they're like, okay, what are things I absolutely should not do in working with this population? What are some of those things that come up for you just off the top of your head? Um, so don't make assumptions. That's very important. I think people need to realize because too often we're viewed, and we talked about this before um, the call, uh, you know, before taping, is too often minority communities are, um, we're, we're all kind of lumped together, you know, so the African-American community will be lumped together as this homogenous group without realizing just like every other group, we have different social economic statuses. We have different educational levels. We have different political affiliation, religious ideologies and beliefs. Um, and so I think that's really important for therapists to know, please don't group us all together because you make those microaggressions, right? So I've had people say to me um, things like, uh, well, um, I didn't know African-Americans did that. Like we do everything everyone else does, you know, so don't make, make sure you're not committing those, you know, microaggressions is another one. Um, you're very articulate or you're very professional, you know, and things that you may think are a compliment are a microaggression to those in marginalized communities, right? Um, I mean, as a woman, Beth, you understand because you experience them as well, you know, oh, wow, you own your own, you know. Uh, so where's your husband in, you know, at in this, you know, and, and th these are not compliments. These are microaggressions. So be very cognitive um, and aware of those microaggressions. I would also say that you need to check your privilege, um, you know, so check your privilege, you know, white privilege is very real. 
Um, and oftentimes I'm still surprised how many African-Americans have not necessarily interacted with a lot of European Americans. But if we look at the community school-based model, we see kids now going to schools that are more segregated than their parents did. We see neighborhoods that are highly segregated. And so they may have not had a lot of interaction with European Americans. So, you know, consider that when you're interacting with them. Please don't mock um, the way that someone speaks. I've seen that too, like take on um, that, uh, that form of speech that, that, that's very derogatory as well. If you don't understand something, ask. You know, it, it's nothing, well, I don't understand what that term means. Do you mind explaining it to me? You know, and, and that's fine. Um, but again, just continue to really look at the person from a holistic perspective and don't make those assumptions, you know, um, make sure that you're not um, using, you know, standing there or sitting there pontificating, right? Using our $500 words when we're not sure, right? Because that, that, that's a class issue. That's not a race issue. So not, you know, when we're not sure, um, you know, where our client falls in regards to class, whether they're going to understand what we're saying. And I would always ask for input, you know, so, you know, feedback. So what do you think about that? You know, um, did you want to add anything? Uh, what would you think about doing this? You know, how can I assist you? Um, you know, just things of that nature, uh, I think are just very important. And to create that, you want to build a relationship is what you want to do. And, and the best way to do that is to have those conversations where they can let their guard down and recognize oftentimes that we do have our guards up. Um, du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois, the first African-American to get a PhD from Harvard, when he talked about uh, African-Americans back then, we were called Negroes, but he talked about this two-ness, right? So you're, you're African-American and you're American. It's like these two souls are warring within your body you know, and it's taking all your strength not for, for those two not to tear you apart, you know, and recognizing that intersectionality that we experience in American society and that sometimes we're perceived as if we do not belong. And these are things we have to deal with on a daily basis. So that additional stress in itself, you know, and when I come to you, I should be able to just and let it all go and just share exactly what it, what is taking place in my life with no judgment. I have so many comments and I don't want to wrap up this interview because I want to keep going. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, let me, let me gather myself. Um, Tammy, you and I have talked about a lot of different ideas today, everything from consideration about diagnosis and assessment to social capital within the community to how to create a more welcoming environment that's actually supportive of whatever kind of recovery a client is seeking. This is your jam. This is what you do every day in trying to um, kind of bring awareness to this topic. How can our listeners get in touch with you? Um, and also, what resources do you recommend to them? I know you do a lot of reading. What are your favorite books? So, um, one of my, so again, my uh, company is All Things Diverse. Uh, you just type in Google, All Things Diverse, you and you'll see there that we have a way to contact. You just fill out the contact form and someone will uh, respond within 24 hours. I can also be reached at Tammy, which is T-A-M-M-Y, at allthingsdiverse.com. Um, we're all over social media. And again, our website is just allthingsdiverse.com. Um, and I just really hope that everyone understands, you know, that culture does play a role in counseling and that we all need to be culturally competent. Um, some of the good books that I would recommend is Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And then I just had two chapters published in an African-American Families, a book, Research Theory and Practice, and it's by Cook. Cognella is the uh, academic publisher. And within the book, we have a variety of um, information. So like, you know, historical and contemporary influences on the African-American family, uh, the experiences of African-Americans in urban environments, uh, process adjustment and well-being, you know, about the African-American family influences on child development and health, parenting within the community, 
Chapter nine addresses parenting African-American youth with mental health conditions. So the book was written, I think I was the only sociologist that contributed to the book, but it was written by um, those in um, uh, social work as well as psychology. So again, the book is African-American families, uh, research theory and practice. Um, another book um, would be White Fragility. I really highly recommend that. Um, and then, um, you know, why are all the black kids sitting together is another book. If you're looking, um, for documentaries, I would think like 13 is a really good one to watch. And I recommend my, my Ted talk, the social implications of race, because, um, I'll share, I am biracial. I'm half European American, half African American, and I trace it from 1790, the census until now, and just have a very in-depth conversation about race and how it continues to impact life chances and experiences and just how problematic that social construct is. Wonderful. Um, thank you, Tammy. For everybody, again, this is Dr. Tammy Hodo. Thank you so much for joining us. You covered so many topics, so many points for continued learning, um, which I really appreciate. Thank you for spending this time with us. Thank you, Beth. I enjoyed it. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.